Well, good morning. My name is John Perrine. I'm the community pastor here. You've already heard from me. You've heard from another John. There's lots of Johns here. I know you're all very aware of the many Johns. Um, It's great to be with you. It's great to be concluding this series. It has been a great series, hasn't it? Um, This morning, as we go to talk about Philippians, I just want to begin talking about something that pastors have been talking a lot about. Uh, If you follow any other pastors or you listen to other pastors preach sermons, I feel like this is something that we're always talking about. I'm going to throw a picture up here of the brain. Uh, We're always talking about the brain, and I just want to be the first to acknowledge that pastors probably are not the experts who should be discussing the brain. Uh, My expertise does not extend to neuroscience, but I strangely found myself reading a lot of neuroscience because neuroscience is really, right now, all about behaviors and formation, what it takes to form who we are. There's an interesting debate, though, a trend that has happened in neuroscience that I want to invite you into so that you can use at the next party you're at. And the debate is around this term called neuroplasticity. Everyone say with me, neuroplasticity. Wonderful, you're already learning something this morning. Uh, Neuroplasticity is interesting because about 50 years ago, there was a strong consensus in the scientific community that the brain was totally static. So if you think about it, it kind of makes sense that a brain as an organ is growing through a child's development. It hits a point around the age of 25 that the brain sort of ceases to develop further. And so most psychologists and even brain scientists had this theory that when you hit 25, your brain basically stops. Whatever you, wherever your brain's at there, whatever you've done, and let's be honest, that's not a great age for many of us, <laughs> your brain is stuck there for the rest of your life. Uh, Now, in the last 50 years, a number of fascinating studies have totally reversed this consensus in the scientific community to the point now that almost everyone uh, dismisses static brain theory and instead embraces neuroplasticity. So what is neuroplasticity? Neuroplasticity has been the growing consensus that the brain actually never stops changing. Your brain will change constantly until you die. A number of studies that began to highlight this, uh, one was of London cab drivers. They were studying the brains of those before they learned the streets of London. So London has this sprawling, terrible mess of a road system that you have to memorize as a London cabbie. And they compared the brains of London cabbies who learned the skills of being a cabbie later in their life to those who hadn't. And they found immense neural changes in the cortex of memory, even growth that had taken place in their brain. Um, Another interesting one, if you want to get into some of these studies, again, uh, pastors shouldn't be talking about this, but here I am, uh, is cats. Uh, They did this study of cats where they covered a cat's eye, and then they also did a somewhat cruel uh, experiment on a cat where they bound limbs on the cats to see what would happen to their brains. And they found that cats' brains consistently change, and this has been true in humans as well. If you have something happen to you, if you lose a limb, if you lose an eye, if if you have a stroke, your brain rewires itself to adapt to whatever the new circumstance is. Now, if you think about the implications of neuroplasticity, they're somewhat encouraging that wherever you are right now, You can change, you can grow, you can transform who you are, and yet they're also a little bit intimidating, aren't they? That whatever you're doing right now, whatever behaviors you're repeating, 
Whatever thoughts you are thinking, whatever emotions you are consistently feeling are all actually rewiring your brain. If you sit with the implication of that thought, you begin to realize that surely what you do matters. How you do what you do matters. In fact, the things you repeatedly do will be shaping you into who you are. And I bring all of this up because in the book of Philippians, we have found that now almost 2,000 years ago, this apostle who was writing to a church in Philippi had the same exact approach to the Christian faith and to the Christian life. So let's go back to Philippians, and I just want to give you a brief recap since we're on the last week of the journey. If you've been with us these last three weeks, I want to share with you a few of the the thoughts that the Apostle Paul has been building as he's been writing to this church in Philippi. Um, In Philippians 1, our first week, Paul started with this sweeping statement of familiarity and joy. Paul loves this church that he's writing to. He cares deeply about them. He's praying for them, and he's actually sharing with them in the struggles he's currently in as he is imprisoned because of his faith in Jesus. Paul is currently in Rome, in prison, and as Paul's reflecting on his situation, in chapter one, he's going to say this statement that you've likely heard that may be one of the most magnificent statements in the New Testament. Paul says in Philippians 1:21, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live Christ, to die gain. And John Ferguson did a great job bringing us a message on identity, following Paul into that identity, and yet I just want to connect this to you to neuroplasticity, what Paul is saying is, as I live Christ, I am Christ. I'm so confident of this that if I die now, I gain Christ. This is, this is who I am. Paul's going to continue this theme into Philippians 2 as he reflects in yet another one of the most magnificent and sweeping statements in the New Testament where he talks about who Jesus is. Now again, this is a passage you've probably heard. And again, John Ferguson, another John, uh, brought us the message on Philippians 2. But let me just read this over you as we prepare to keep going. Paul says, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul does is take Jesus lifts him up and says, do you want to know why Jesus is so great? Do you want to know why Jesus is so worthy of my own imprisonment? Do you want to know why I long so deeply to be with Christ? Because Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but Christ emptied himself. He humbled himself. This is who Jesus is that we serve and follow. This is the life that Jesus is inviting us to be formed into. And this is so strong for Paul that in Philippians 3 last week, we had yet another one of the best passages in the New Testament. I don't know if you're catching a theme here about uh, how I feel about the book of Philippians. This is in Philippians 3, verse 8, where Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. It's interesting as I've been thinking about this book, thinking about Paul, 
This man who 2,000 years ago is putting forth a vision of what life in Jesus looks like, what it looks like to be formed into Jesus through our lives. And I've been struck that this letter, this letter that we've been reading, that you've been reading uh, in your devotionals as you've been following along with the community daily, this letter has quite literally shaped our entire global world. Arguably, there are few letters that have been as significant for everyone from Charlemagne and the Franks to Martin Luther and the German Reformation to the Puritans who first came to North America all the way up to Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights marchers for freedom. This letter, this passage, this arc that Paul has taken us on has quite literally shaped history. That's how sweeping and big and epic this letter is. But I, I say all this because I, I just want to kind of draw your attention to where Paul is going to land it in Philippians 4, and I find this kind of funny. Paul's going to bring us to quite an intimate, mundane moment. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Philippians 4. You can open up on your phone, or you can follow along on the screen. In Philippians 4, Paul has gone so big and so sweeping about what this life in Jesus is that he then turns to something almost humorous. This is going to be found in Philippians 4, verse 2. He's going to say this, I plead with Evodia and I plead with Suntike to be of the same mind in the Lord. I plead with Evodia and Suntike to be of the same mind of the Lord. Now, if you were just reading the Bible on your own, you might miss this moment. You might have no idea what's going on. Uh, if you are Evodia or Syntyche, I think your stomach drops a little bit, doesn't it, when this moment occurs. Paul has been talking in a letter that will shape all of history, and he's just named you as problem makers in the church. However, the details behind this are actually really fascinating. Uh, first point to make here is that for Paul, there actually is no disconnect between the sweeping vision of Jesus, who Jesus is, God himself who emptied himself, and a conflict, an everyday conflict happening in the church. Paul says these matter to each other right? These are connected. When Jesus emptied himself, he did it so that you could find peace in the midst of your practical conflicts. But an even more interesting point here is that if Paul cares about this, if Paul says there's a connection here between Jesus and this conflict, we also can tell by Paul naming these two specific leaders that Paul actually really does care about Evodia and Syntyche. And again, that's kind of a tricky name, Syntyche. Uh, but in addressing these two specifically, most scholars think that Evodia and Syntyche probably were significant leaders in the church. If this is a tiny squabble, if this is a conflict between friends or just a slight disagreement happening over on the side, there's no way Paul would have taken the time to address this. In fact, in the ancient world, it is highly uncommon to almost rare to find any women mentioned in correspondence at all. And that is because in the Roman world, women were not honored or valued. Uh, and to name them, to name specific women, is actually to elevate, to honor, to praise. And scholars say this is, this is exceedingly rare. We find almost no women mentioned in any personal correspondence, and yet Paul goes out of his way to address these two women specifically. So most scholars think these women were most likely significant leaders in the church. That's why this matters. That's why Paul wants to go after this specifically with them. If Evodia and Syntyche 
are stuck in disagreement, the church may actually collapse. So what does Paul tell these two struggling leaders in the early church to do? Well, he says, come together, share in the same mind as Jesus. Come into this humility of Jesus. Enter into our Lord and Savior who went to the cross. In fact, in the following verse, track with the couple of extra details we get here that are quite rich and beautiful. Paul's going to say, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are all in the book of life. Isn't this almost beautiful? Now, I've made this kind of a big deal because most scholars are curious here. Surely this was a big deal. There was some major disagreement. Perhaps there was even tension, some scholars suggest, between these two women and how they thought the church should support Paul in this moment. I mentioned last week the church has likely sent a financial gift to Paul, and some scholars think Evodia and Syntyche might have been at odds with each other. We should send him a lot. No, we shouldn't send him anything at all. We can't afford it right now. We need to help somewhere else. However, if that's the case, Paul says, you, my true companions, the church, need to help them come together. Yet I trust, I trust here among these fellow workers in the gospel, we're going to find this same mind. We're going to come meet each other in Jesus. This is kind of interesting that for the epic scope and sweep of where Paul has taken all of this, at the end of the day, the reason why I wanted to start us here in Philippians 4 is that because is that our personal relationships, the conflicts, the behaviors, the thoughts, and the words that we use with each other actually matter in shaping who we are as a community. You with me? So if Paul is looking at these two women who are in conflict, he says this matters deeply, that if we get this wrong, if we get these conflicts wrong, if we can't come together and find that same mindset of Christ, we're never going to get to this sweeping scope of, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? We have to start here in the everyday struggles of our thoughts, our behaviors, and our choices. Now, what is really going on, I think, has to do, Paul is going to show us, with our attention and what we're paying attention to. I actually want to invite you to do a quick experiment with me. It's very simple, but it's going to get you engaged. Go ahead and move your arms just a little bit to get ready. You ready? All right. Uh, So this is the quick experiment. Go ahead and hold your hand up in front of you. I'm just going to encourage you for a second to focus in on your hand. It's kind of interesting, right? As you look at your hand, you actually can't really see a ton around and behind your hand, especially if you're really focused on it. Now go ahead and Do that thing where you shift your gaze off of your hand and look behind it. You can either look up at me or look at the room. Try to take it all in. What you notice is that your hand disappears, right? You can lower your hands. Thank you for indulging me in that. It's an interesting experiment because it highlights what any of us who use a camera, uh, who stress out about being the one to take the camera shot uh, when everyone asks, can you capture this moment, understands that the lens and the focus of the lens is what's going to draw the center of gravity and attention. If you zoom out, if you focus out, and you capture the whole room, what you lose is the detail. You lose the specific generating power of attention. But if you zero in on one thing, if you choose one object and focus intensely on it, what you begin to find is that that attention draws you in. 
now all of this vivid character, quality, and depth is going to emerge. Uh, as brain scientists have been highlighting our neuroplasticity, as they've been asking these big picture questions about what it takes to form us in new directions, one of the greatest tools we have to use to form our brains is our attention. What you pay attention to will shape who you are. There's two great quotes. Um, one is by Mary Oliver, the poet. I'm just going to let you absorb this one for a second. She says, quite simply, attention is the beginning of devotion. Isn't that beautiful? You think about your life. You think about the things that you care most deeply about. You think about your friendships or your spouse. Maybe you even think about your dog, the amount of attention that's required. And what you realize is that which you pay attention to is that which you are devoted to. If you pay attention to something, devotion is naturally going to emerge. Another quote, this is one from William James, who's the famous American psychologist who studied religion and religious experiences. He says this, We must reflect that when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to, whether by choice or default. When we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to. I mean, this immediately begs a very big question, doesn't it? What are we paying attention to? What choices are we making to center our attention? It, it took just a little bit of effort, didn't it, to actually focus in on your hand. And then it took a little bit of effort to shift your gaze, to focus in on something else. What the Apostle Paul is trying to encourage the church in Philippi in, what he wants to encourage us in this morning as well, is that what we choose to focus our attention on is what's going to shape us. So Paul is going to give us three choices, three choices that can help center our attention on that which we need to focus on. So let me give you the first one. This is from Philippians 4.4. 4. Paul is going to say, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now I just want to draw your attention to the connection. Paul has just addressed conflict. <laughs> Paul has just brought up something that probably made the church feel uncomfortable. He says, there's an issue here. Something is not right between Evodia and Syntyche. This is affecting everybody, but I know we can solve this, and now here's how we get through it. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. I want to be the first to confess that this verse was taught to me when I was a little child. Did any of you have that experience? Maybe growing up in the church in a Sunday school, there was a song that was associated with it. Anybody want to sing the song with me? Something like, Rejoice in the Lord always, I say again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And every time I read this verse, it takes me back to that childhood hymn, and it kind of feels obnoxious in my mind. Uh, it kind of feels like shallow and trite. And I think there's something to acknowledge here that says for many of us, our worlds are the context we find ourselves in. Don't give us much to rejoice about. To just hear someone say, you know, just, just rejoice. Like, rejoice always. I think misses the point. Can feel kind of like that childhood tune just playing over and over in your head. I think Paul has something far deeper in mind here. I think for Paul, this actually is about a choice, an active agency choice for us to shift our attention off of whatever that thing is 
that is activating suffering, activating struggle, activating, sh uh, activating strife, and is inviting us to instead shift our attention over to this joy that is possible in the Lord. Paul is the first to acknowledge that life is not easy. Paul is the first to acknowledge that imprisonment is hard. And yet what Paul envisions for us is this new center of perspective where he says, what if you could, though, rejoice? Like, what would it actually take, even now for you, as you think through that list you have? I have my list. That list of things you wish were different. That list of things you'd want to change. And, and Paul's almost asking, what if you could take that list, that list of all the things that, man, if that would just get solved, if that would just get right, if I could just get more of that, if there'd be more of this. What if you could put that list down, and what if you could just step over to focusing instead on joy. What would that shift take? I think Paul, should read through Philippians, has been trying to highlight to us, it would take the good news of God offering and securing everything for you to be able to live over here in this rejoicing. It, it would take an active effort on your part, yes, the suffering is right here in front of your gaze, to focus instead in on all of the joy that is being extended to you in Christ. Now, I'm, I again want to be the first to say this is not an easy shift. In fact, this is going to take some work. It might even, for many of us, take some neuroplasticity. We might need to work this one through over and over and over again. But I think the invitation, the question is, what if your life could actually be centered on joy? What if you could rejoice always? Can you imagine the freedom the relief, getting to this point where you know even if things don't work out in my job, even if this conflict doesn't get resolved, even if my apartment never gets any bigger, I can sit here and I can rejoice. Now, this isn't the only choice that Paul is going to highlight to us. Paul's kind of moving through this rapid-fire succession in Philippians 4. The next choice he offers us is the choice to be gentle. He's going to say this in Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Gentleness, being gentle with everyone. The choice to shift from a perspective of stress, a perspective of anger, a perspective of rage, and instead come over here to extend gentleness. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about what it feels like living over here. Uh, I, to be totally honest with you, <laughs> have this past week been convicted multiple times of how often I find anger well up in my body. Anyone else here <laughs> have the anger approach? And I think uh, for many friends who only know me a little, there's a sense of, oh, John's a pastor. He's a really nice guy. He's a really nice guy. If you were to talk to my wife, who knows me a lot, she'd say, but he can get angry sometimes. <laughs> He can get angry. And yet, as I've been thinking about it, you think about anger. You think about the traffic light you hit that uh, is going to slow down your trip to wherever you're trying to go. You, you think about the moment that someone approaches you on the street and interrupts you as you're talking to someone else to ask you for some change. You think about the moment that you're standing there in a coffee shop 
and it's taking longer than you thought, and the coffee's not coming, and then you go to order, and then the coffee's still not there, and yes, I know these are first world problems, but I'm feeling very angry right now in this moment. And as I think about all those situations, what I notice is each of them actually is never really about the moment. It's known this deeper stress test on my life, this deeper question around really that first choice Paul highlighted. Am I living here on my own? Am I living in anxiety? Or have I shifted my perspective to joy? When I think about living in that kind of stress test, I think Paul's invitation to us is, what would it take for you to move from anger into gentleness? And he actually offers us an interesting clue here at the end of the verse. He says, what if the Lord is actually near? What if the Lord is near? Does that change the anger that's welling up inside? Does that change the stress of traffic as you're being cut off? Does that change the moment you're waiting and something is taking longer than it should? What would it look like to live your whole life like the Lord is actually near? I think you can see Paul envisioning the shift in which you move from having an attention focused on what is going wrong and the injustices that are coming to you, to instead, over here, having this attention into the open-ended possibilities of how God might change and disrupt any moment for redemption and good. If that actually is what our faith offers to us, if that actually is what it means for the Lord to be near, well, then I think you start to see how Paul says, just be gentle, right? Be gentle with everyone. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Anything could happen to move this moment towards good. So if the Lord is near, be gentle. This leads us to Paul's final choice that he's going to offer us. This one especially hits home with me. This is Philippians 4, 6. Paul's going to say, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. This word anxiety is a huge conversation right now. Anxiety has been our experience of COVID. Anxiety has been the mental health issues that are rampant right now in our generation, in our culture, in this post-social media moment. Anxiety is what, if we're being honest, many of us probably feel on a pretty regular basis. And yet, I was digging into this word anxiety and was just interested to discover in the Greek, the word has a double meaning. It's one of these ancient words that sometimes the same word can either mean something positive or negative, depending on the context. And the word for anxiety is actually the word for to be cared for. Anxiety is to be cared for. And so positively, this word means I was cared for by you. But negatively, it means I was not cared for, and therefore I am anxious. So if you're tracking with Paul, using this word negatively, what he's saying is, do not feel uncared for about anything. Do not feel uncared for about anything. I've just been pondering this. Is it possible that my anxiety is rooted in this deep sense of concern, maybe even fear, that at a core level, I don't think people care about me? Like, when that anxiety is really welling up, when I feel 
anxious in a social setting, when I feel anxious at work, when I feel anxious about disappointing others, is it possible that what's really there is just this deeply embedded fear that someone isn't going to care? And if that's the case, what Paul is saying is, you don't have to live uncared for. You are not actually uncared for in Christ. Instead, in fact, you have a God who wants to hear and receive every petition, every request, every need. Is it possible that in Jesus you are actually profoundly cared for in a way that you have not even yet fully grasped or embraced? If this is true, then I think really that shift of attention, that shift of anxiety from a sense of uncaredness into a peace that believes I am profoundly cared for is not only like a burden, a chore, a moral checklist of things you now need to do because church tells you to. Instead, this is actually at the heart of the invitation to move from death, a life of anxiety, into new life, a life in which you are profoundly and consistently cared for. And Paul gives us one simple practice, and that is prayer. Is it possible that prayer is actually the, the tool, the gift that shifts our attention? And when you feel anxious, prayer is meant to be the tool that reminds you of your cared-forness. And when you feel that anger welling up in you, prayer is the tool that reminds you of the gentleness that means the Lord is near. When you are living here in sorrows, in suffering, in disappointment, prayer is the tool that reminds you of the shift in perspective to all of the joy that God actually wants to offer you. Paul sort of wraps this all together in Philippians 4, 7. He's going to say this, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace. It's the last gift Paul sees as the culmination of this shift in attention, the choices we can make to reform our brain into Christ-likeness. And yet, if you notice in this verse, the peace is not that something that comes up from us. It's not ours, but it's actually this gift. It's the peace of God. It's something we receive from without. It can only come when we shift our attention from ourselves, living this you life, just on your own, into a you plus life, where God is actually the one involved, present, near, and pouring himself out to us. If we do this, then Paul says, and I think the neuroscience actually holds up, if you receive the peace of God, then that peace actually will guard your hearts and your minds. If you begin to make these choices, if you begin to shift your attention, if you begin to, in prayer, offer up these petitions to your God, then what's going to happen is peace will flow from God to you, and that peace will now protect the pathways of your brain so that God's presence will press back the anxieties, so God's gentleness will hold back the anger, and so that God's joy is going to push back your sorrows. Isn't that a beautiful invitation? Isn't that the kind of life each of us are longing for. Let me go ahead and pray for us as we move to a final time of worship. Jesus, we ask even now for your peace. 
Jesus, we ask you would come even now in this message to stir our minds, to stir our neural pathways, to draw our attention to those choices, to those behaviors, to those thoughts that have really left us stuck. They've left us dead in our former ways. And Lord, in doing so, even now, would you begin shifting our attention? Would you empower us through your spirit to choose to move into your joy, to move into your gentleness, to move into your presence so that we might receive your peace. We lift these prayers up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.